Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It was just, uh, as we're singing that last verse, I was thinking about even my week, and the week of some people that are near and dear to many of us in this church. Over the last few days, and even in the last 24 hours, over the last few days, we've had three of our uh, of our people, of our family, church family, that have gone on to glory. Two within the last 24 hours. And I think about that verse, that when death gives way to victory. Man, that's good, isn't it? We're going to talk today about the most important event in the history of the world. And sometimes preachers say things that are overstatement. That's not one. We're going to talk about the single most important event in the history of the world. And we're going to talk about it from perspective of asking the question, why is it so important? What if it's not true? Why do we think it is true? And then what if it is? You know, as the older I get, the more I realize that sometimes Easter's a lot. How many of you are wearing something new today? Only about five of us. Good. Everybody else didn't want to admit it, right? I mean, it is a Baptist church. You raise your hand if you want to. It's all right. We, I got on, I got on a new tie. Did y'all see that? Some, you know, Easter's a lot. Sometimes you're even as your pastor, you have to look up how to tie a tie because you haven't worn one in a year, and so. I have to look at that. It's a lot. So, I mean, anybody got food ready, like cooking right now, or you got some wondering how long the preacher's going to go get the ham in the oven? Or here's what I want to give you as a little comfort: there's a rib roast in our oven, so we're going to get done on time. All right? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? We start public, started putting those things on sale on Easter week, and that has become our tradition. All glory to God. Easter's a lot. Easter egg hunts for kids or grandkids. It, it falls, my wife's a teacher, it falls in the time when kids are getting ready in our state for uh, state assessment tests. It just feels like there's a lot going on. And sometimes at an event like this, at a moment like this, and you got up and you're here today and you got dressed up and you came to church and maybe this is what you do all the time. Maybe this is a special moment. Maybe you're here because it was the condition for you to eat that whatever's in the oven a little bit later. And you just wonder, is it worth it? And here's what I'll tell you. Today, the celebration of Easter is worth it if it's true. If it's true, it's worth it. If it's not, it's not. Tim Keller said this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If you didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about it or any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. We celebrate Easter because it signifies the single most important event in history. And I'm here today to tell you that according to scriptures and according to my own experience, even if you have doubts about whether the resurrection really happened, you want it to be true. We need it to be true. Steve Jobs, you ever heard of Steve Jobs? 
founded Apple and uh, considered a genius. Steve Jobs, many of you know, died of cancer several years ago. And his book on his biography, Walter Isaacson, wrote a book, a biography of him. And in that book, he talks about his spiritual journey. And there was an interview that asked him toward the end of his life about his view of God. And he said, the closer I get to death, the more I believe. Now, I'm I'm not suggesting, I don't know anything about his actual spiritual life. He doesn't declare a belief in Jesus. But listen to what he said about why he wants to believe. He said, because I just can't accept that the body just turns off one day and then it's over and you're gone forever. And then someday the sun of our solar system goes out and that's the end of human history. There's got to be more to it. It can't just be that we are an illusion of consciousness arising from a fortuitous cosmic accident. He basically said, I want to believe because otherwise it leaves me in a weird place, in a bad place. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Steve Jobs wasn't the first one to think about what the ramifications would be if there isn't a God or if for us as believers, Jesus was not who he says he is. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to a group in a church in Corinth. And let me just tell you about this church in Corinth. It was a mess. I mean, an absolute mess. We won't go into all the details. Sometime we're going to preach a series through this and we're going to look at all that. But they were fighting with each other. They were talking about each other behind each other's back. They were gossiping all around town. They were, uh, some people were taking advantage of other people. Some of the richer people that could get off early were coming and having a feast and there wouldn't be any food left for those that had to work all day and got there later. They were taking advantage of that position. There was sexual immorality throughout the place. People were jumping up in the middle of service and letting their hair down and yelling and screaming and talking in different languages and nobody understood what was going on. It was chaotic experience. And in the midst of that, there were some people that says, well, we're not, it doesn't matter because we're just here for now and we're not even going to raise from the dead. And Paul writes and says, if Christ rose from the dead, we will. But then he says in the midst of this, and this is the importance of that. This is verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, so if the resurrection did not happen, he gives us this outlook. That our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen in sleep in Christ have perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. And so if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, Paul gives us some very specific things that are true if that occurrence did not happen, if that historical event did not happen. And the first one is, for me, if Jesus is not raised, my preaching is pointless. Now, I'm not asking you whether you think it is anyway. But that means that I have spent my entire adult life 
pursuing and preparing and speaking things that are pointless. In fact, the, the word that he uses here is the word vain. And that word in the original language and even in our language means empty, futile, useless, a colossal waste of time. And he says that if Christ has not been raised, then what we are doing here, what I am doing and proclaiming to you the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely futile, useless, a colossal waste of time because there is no gospel without a resurrection. Then he says, and not only is my pointless, so is your faith. Your faith is foolish. You have trusted in something that doesn't deserve your trust. On top of that, if Jesus is not raised, then disciples are deceivers. Another way to say that is we are all liars. People who perpetuate falsehoods, who continually speak about things that aren't true. If Jesus is not raised, then it tells us that sin is sovereign, which means that we are lost in our sins, dead in them forever and ever the end. You see, the cross that we celebrate on Good Friday, where Jesus paid for our sins, was vital for our salvation. But without the resurrection, then we do not have a risen Savior We have a prophet who promised what he did not deliver. And Jesus is not raised, then death has dominion. Then when you die, you're done. And that's it. Which brings us to what sums up the whole thing. He uses the word pity. But if Jesus is not raised, then life is meaningless. Well, that's some exciting Easter stuff, isn't it? Uplifting is what you came for today. We just finished our men's Bible study. We just finished walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I don't know if you've read Ecclesiastes lately. If you're having a particularly difficult day, I would not recommend it. Um, that's for a day when you already feel good about yourself, all right? And you already feel good about where you are with God. I, I, I jokingly told the guys, I said, if I ever mention doing um, a study on Ecclesiastes again, uh, tell me no, all right? Because every week, all that we learned about, all that we got every week was life is meaningless. The whole book starts with vanity upon vanities. Everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. There is no point. And there's a clue under there. Bobby Watts in the first week reminded of this. And we carried it throughout that entire study. That in that first thing it says everything under the sun. And the basic understanding is if this is all there is, then there is nothing with meaning. And then he goes down the list. It's Solomon declaring this. And he says, I've enjoyed every pleasure a man could imagine. All the money you could imagine, all the food you could imagine, all the relationships you could imagine. He is the one that had a thousand females. He said, I've enjoyed building up one of the greatest wealths of all place. I've explored wisdom and the deeper things of life. And he just comes at the end of every one of those and says, and what I have discovered is it's meaningless. He says, you make money to pass it on to people that are going to waste what you made. 
He says you get knowledge and all the knowledge does is it shows you how bad everything is around you. The more you know, the more you know how bad it is. We experience that in our own lives. We have more information today about what is going on in the world and people are more depressed than they've ever been. Everything, he says, is meaningless. Some people feel that what Paul is doing is picking up on the idea of Ecclesiastes and saying, if the resurrection is not true, then Ecclesiastes is our best hope and there is no hope there. But we believe. So what I thought I'd do for just a moment, if you'd let me, is to give you a few reasons why I believe. Because if this is the most important understanding in the history of the world, then we need to have a good foundation. And so, first of all, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not someone that can believe in the resurrection according to all the standards that you put up and you say, listen, surely you don't still believe in that fable or fairy tale or myth or whatever you think. Maybe you're here today and you say, I just can't bring myself to believe in that. Then I hope the next few minutes, I can't get, I wish I could give you four hours. Um, You don't, but I do. All right. We don't have that. But I'd love to, to, to give you some, some evidence of the reality of the resurrection. If you are here and you're a believer, we live in a world that is increasingly questioning of the realities of what we proclaim as Jesus followers. The Bible tells us to always be ready to give a defense. And so when you're at work or you're at a ball game or you're somewhere and they're like, well, how can you even believe that? Or, and they're not going to tee it up like that. But you get into discussion about the resurrection of Jesus. Hopefully there are some things here that you can hold on to, that you can grasp onto to be able to defend the faith. And I actually want to go to the first part of chapter 15 because Paul's argument obviously is not that Jesus was not raised from the dead. And he gives us at the beginning of this some evidences that we can see of the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. This is what I preached. This is what you have believed. This is what you are standing on and by which you are being saved. That you are being put into the image of Jesus. If you hold on to that message, I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, he gives us what that is. For I passed on to you as the most important what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I want to give you five E's that help prove the resurrection of Jesus. And the first one's going to sound interesting because it's not about his resurrection, it's about his death. But the first E is that he was executed. Paul says it right there at the beginning. This is the gospel, that he was crucified, that he was dead, that he was buried. Can I tell you that one of the most well-sourced events in the history of the world is the death of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in the ancient world, if you had one source that was semi-reliable, people thought that was awesome. We have at least nine contemporary sources, some outside the Bible, that describe the death of Jesus. There is no reputable scholar that is working today, even Christian or non-Christian, that believe that there wasn't someone named Jesus who died by crucifixion at the hands of the Roman government. So we know that we have a Savior who died. Why is that important? Because through years, people say, well, maybe he really didn't die. Maybe he just kind of fainted on the cross. Again, we don't have time to go into the details of the cross, but if you think there is any way someone could just simply faint from the cross and the physical, excruciating, physically excruciating way that you died, then you haven't read the history. In fact, that word excruciating is specifically made from the pain experienced on the cross, excruciating out of the cross. We know he died. Secondly, we have early descriptions of his resurrection. Again, this is something we don't have time to go fully in depth with, but I'll just tell you this, that in most modern understanding of the way ancient history rose, people did not write the history of what happened until 50, 70, 80, usually even 100 to 200 years later. Y'all ever heard of a guy named Alexander the Great? Anybody ever heard? I'm just seeing if you raise your hand. Anybody see her, Alexander the Great? We need to redo our uh, educational system, if not, all right? Our information about Alexander the Great, almost all of it comes from material that was written at least 200 years after he lived. And nobody questions it. Or not really. Here's the amazing thing about what we know about the resurrection of Jesus being described. Is what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was written within 20 to 25 to 30 years of Jesus. And here's what's even more amazing about that. What Paul quotes there in chapter 15, verse 1, he says that that's what he gave them when he came to preach to them. That would have been before he wrote this. That was a creed, a hymn, something they used to remember the story of Jesus and the gospel. That would have been, you know, in the summer we do vacation Bible school, and every year we do the ABCs, right? Admit, believe, confess. This is Paul's ABCs of the gospel. This is his whole thing. This is what he goes to every church and he tells them. And we know that Paul was going to churches and telling them within 10 to 15 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, we know that Paul spent some time within three to four years at the most with the other apostles and with some apostles in particular, Cephas that he mentions here, Peter, and they discuss things. And most people think that the creed that he has came specifically from his meetings with those apostles. And in fact, they think they can trace what this particular place is, what you're reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through about 8. They think you can trace that within months of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not hundreds of years later. Here's the third thing. You know, another almost undisputed fact in history is that the tomb was empty. Now, we say that as a declaration, but it's also historical fact. You know how we know that partially? is because the enemies of Jesus tried to explain why it was empty. If it wasn't empty, 
Do you know how you explain away the tomb being empty? You take people to the tomb and you show them the body. Right? Are you with me? You show them the body and say, here it is. Nobody did that. They try to come up with they stole it or something happened. In fact, they have never been anywhere of that contemporary time who disproved or tried to that the body was gone. Here's the thing that I can tell you. And I've not been to the Holy Land. It's on my bucket list. I want to go. I hope to go sometime in my lifetime for sure. But here's what I want to tell you. When you go to the Holy Land, they will take you to a place that they think is the place where Jesus was buried. Here's what I can tell you. They don't have a clue if it's exactly the place where Jesus was buried because the disciples didn't remember where Jesus was buried. And if the disciples didn't remember where Jesus was buried, it's because he was only there for a couple of days and then he was gone and it wasn't important to them anymore. There was no way they imagined. You know what? In 2,000 years, I bet people are going to be flying on planes to come over here. We need to mark the spot. The tomb was empty. Paul says in chapter 15, He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Here's the fourth E. There were eyewitnesses. Lots of them. Matthew, John, Peter, Mark, Martha, Mary Magdalene. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Can I tell you my favorite line in all of chapter 15 because it is Paul basically saying quit the nonsense of arguing it didn't happen and it is when he says he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time this wasn't a mass hallucination there were 500 of us there and he showed up and then he says and most of them are still alive you know what the implication there is go ask him about it Find out if it's true. Just go ask them. There were eyewitnesses upon eyewitnesses to this. And here is perhaps the strongest argument that the resurrection happened. By the way, I don't know if you know this. There were like dozens of Messiah movements within about a 300 period of time around Jesus. Of people claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be things that even, that trying to be like Jesus or that Jesus claimed. There was one in several, I mean, in almost every kind of little era, there was one of these. But here's what I want to tell you. You know why you don't know about those? It's because those people died and their followers found somebody else. None of them thought, hey, you know what would be good? Let's just pretend he came back from the dead. So here's the thing that is perhaps the most convincing argument for the resurrection of Jesus. Is these nobody outside of their association with Jesus. Peasants from little towns around this back of the world part of the Roman Empire started a worldwide movement that has reached billions of people on the claim that he rose from the grave and they were willing to die for the claim. They went from people who were cowering and hiding from the authorities 
to within a few days standing before them and saying, the Jesus that you crucified has been raised. Something transformed their lives. When here's the last E, and then we're going to talk about what it means for us today. The last E is experience. I've been pastoring now for over 20 years. And the number of lives that I have seen Jesus changed is incalculable. The number of lives that I've heard testimony to that he has changed, I cannot begin to imagine. There are certain people that I know that I know. One of my favorite stories was from my previous church in Ripley. Told his story before, a guy named Leon Holt. When I got to town, I visited with Leon because one of my deacons knew Leon and said, man, he needs Jesus. And I went and Leon, without any question, told me he did not need Jesus. He was fine with whatever was to come. Leon was going to have surgery in a hospital and I went to visit Leon in the hospital. And Leon told me again right before surgery that he did not need Jesus and that he would never follow him. He used some colorful language to tell me that my presence was okay, but I needed to leave. Two days later, I got a call to go see Leon again, and in the midst of surgery, he had flatlined for a moment, and he told me I felt I was descending into hell, and I cried out for Jesus to save me. And Leon Holt was baptized on the Easter morning about 12 to 15 years ago. And before I left Ripley, he was a deacon in our church and one of the ones leading our servant ministry. His life was radically transformed because of a risen Savior. And I believe in the resurrection because Jesus has changed my life. He has brought me from death unto life and he has given me a hope and a future. And I know that I know that he is real. So what does that mean? It means it comes down to a choice of what you believe. Wolf Hart Pannenberg says this about the resurrection. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First of all, it is a very unusual event. Can we all agree on that, by the way? It's not like it's just a normal event we're talking about. man coming back from the dead, pretty unusual. And second, if you believed it happened, you have to change the way you live. This isn't just, a, well, I believe that and it's okay, but I don't know that I really want to change everything. I was listening this week to a guy named Lee Strobel, and Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and his wife became a Christian. Many of you know his story. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and he's written The Case for Easter and The Case for Faith and The Case for Miracles and all kinds of books. But he was an investigative journalist. His wife became a Christian. He was not. He was an atheist. And his wife began to go to meetings, and they began to make lifestyle changes, and he was uncomfortable with that. So he decided to investigate Jesus to prove to her that she was wrong so they could get back to living like they were living. And after two years, 
Lee Strobel said he came to a point, he laid all the evidence out, all of this stuff he had investigated, he laid it out on his table, and he looked at it and he said, I would now have to have more faith to be an atheist than I would to believe in Jesus. Because the evidence is so strong. But then he said, I also just looked at it and thought, it's not enough to believe. I must receive what he has offered to me in salvation. First Corinthians 15 and other places tells us what the implications of a resurrected Jesus is. And the first one is this, is because he lives, Jesus is who he says he is. It is the validation of the claims that he made about himself. Over the last seven weeks, we have spent time talking about what Jesus said about himself. Not what other people said about him, not what other scholars have said about him, what he himself said about himself. And we have that, I mean, I put that list back up. We can put it back up there because these are the things that Jesus said about himself that he was the bread of life and the light of the world and the door and the good shepherd and the resurrection and life and the true vine and the way the truth and life and it leaves no place to look but jesus as the only source of salvation for us and if jesus rose from the grave it validates what he said about who he is he is who he says he is the son of god the great i am the lamb who was slain and had been prepared to be slain since the foundation of the worlds he is the one and coming king who is and was and always will be that is the same yesterday today and forever he is god God Almighty, He is our Savior. And because He lives, Jesus is who He says He is. And that means, good news, that because He lives, we can be forgiven. That our souls can be set free. That the guilt and the shame that comes from the sin in our lives can be released forever. He can't undo your past in the things that you have chosen, but He can forgive you for what that is, and He can set you on a course to live free of guilt and shame going forward and to spend eternity with Him. Because He lives, death has no more sting. This morning on the way here, Mr. Dick Jones is one of the one of our faithful members that has passed away. I visited with Dick just a few days ago. Noah and Terry York and I got to visit with him in the hospital right before he left to go to a, a home in East Tennessee, um, east of here, and he passed away last night in the night. And his wife, Miss Joyce, um, called this morning on my way here. And there was a statement there because... She was asking about funeral arrangements, and they haven't made those, and, and, and they're looking to that. And um, another one of our, one of our men named Earl Burden has passed away as well, and and, and she's trying to coordinate. And she did not know about Earl. And I said, "Well, Miss Joyce, I want to tell you that Mr. Earl passed away too. That funeral is Tuesday." And I just was. It, it took me a second to even realize what she said. Well, she said, "Y'all know Miss Joyce. Miss Joyce just she she talks." Um, and Miss Joyce just said, she goes, well, we're crying, but they're rejoicing. And I said, you're right. She goes, they're having the best time. And I just thought, man, that's a weird thing to say for most people when death comes, right? Man, we're crying, but they're rejoicing. Because death has no more sting. Man, I'm going to tell you, if this is all there is... And I'm going to die and however many years are prescribed for me. And that's it. Man, I'm with the author of Ecclesiastes. This is meaningless. 
but praise be to God. By the way, that phrase, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your stake? It comes from one of the places is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the longest chapters in the Bible. It's one we didn't read the whole thing and all of God's people said. Verse 55 says, where death is your sting, where death, that means your victory, where death is your sting. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he lives, death has no more sting. Because he lives, our suffering is light and momentary. And we suffer and there are difficult days ahead for all of us in this room. But because he lives, it is light, it is momentary, it is not compared to the glory that is prepared for us or the good things that our Father has saved for us. No eye has seen, no, 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 no mind can imagine, no ear has heard what he has prepared for those that love him. And it's light and momentary. And then this is it, and we're done. Because he lives, living for him is the only wise choice. I mean, all out living for him. Whatever he asks, wherever he asks, whenever he asks, to do whatever is called upon us is the only choice we have. Paul wraps up this entire chapter 15 in verse 58. And he says, after that, the sting of death is in the power of sin, but thanks be to God who gives the victory through Christ Jesus. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, he gives them commands. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know that what you're doing for the Lord will last. So church, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, be immovable, be steadfast, always excelling in the Lord's work. And if you're here today and you haven't yet made that commitment to Christ, you haven't accepted, received the salvation that He offers, there's no better day than Easter Sunday morning to do that. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response, and I'm going to come stand down here. Noah, our student pastor, you've already heard from, is going to come stand down here, and we'd love to have a conversation with. Him. Maybe you're here, and uh, you're you're new, or you've been coming for a few weeks, and you're like, man, Easter Sunday is the Sunday I want to declare this is the place that God has called me to be a part of a church. And you want to come and just make that clear. Maybe you're here. And you're a believer, but you realize that, man, it, it, stuff's just gotten in the way lately. I haven't been faithful to the Lord. I haven't been immovable or steadfast. I haven't been excelling in the works of the Lord. I haven't been doing what God's called me to do. And I don't need a pastor to tell me that. I know that. And, um, I haven't been, haven't been involved in a local church. I haven't been involved in my church here. I haven't been involved with following the Lord in the ways that I live out and speak out and think. Maybe today's just a day to focus your life in that direction and Come and talk to us or come and just pray at the front. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is the gospel that Christ died for us, was buried, and rose again. And if we will believe 
and the reality of the fact that we need to be forgiven of our sins and that he provided the way and we trust and receive what he's given to us, we will be saved. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. Would you bow with me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we just pray in this moment for your will to be done. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would make them uncomfortable. That they would realize that they need to be saved. And Lord, they would realize that we're not promised another day, that today is the day. Pray that you would give them the courage and the strength to be willing to surrender to you. Lord, I pray if there are those here today that just haven't been living as they should be for you, Lord, that today would be the day that they refocus and they walk back into that relationship. Lord, you've never left. You're there with them. But Lord, I pray that you would help them to understand the ways in their lives that they need to shed some things or add some things in order to walk where you want them to walk, to be steadfast and immovable and to excel in the things of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be exactly that. Steadfast, immovable, and excelling in the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.